we're so excited to have a returning guest. Anytime we have returning guests, we, we say, yay, we didn't scare them off the first time. And we had such a great conversation last time. I'm really, really excited for this. Before we get going, um, first off, my name is Rachel. I'm a school psychologist in Maryland. I wanted to mention uh, a couple things. One, we're excited to go to National School Psychology Week. And I think a lot of people, so drop in the chat if you've got interesting things going on. I saw that MSPA, uh, Maryland School Psych Association, had something up about the, the person that interacts the most with their social media wins like a free membership for next year. So if all of you remember my competitiveness, the last two NASPs where they had the leaderboard and I won, I had two years, so I had the most interactions and won the leaderboard. So I don't think MSPA is ready for what's about to happen this week because I'm going to be liking and retweeting and sharing and doing all the things. So so keep them in your thoughts as, as we go through that. The other thing that I wanted to mention was um, you know, we have our Google Drive and we're very proud of our Google Drive. Recently, Google has changed some sharing permissions to make things a little bit more secure. And so that's resulted in our Drive link changing. So we've updated that on our Facebook and on the web site and on Twitter and all of those things. Um, the thing is that I, I think that some people aren't getting that update. And so I'm getting like a million zillion requests for access to the drive. So please, um, instead of sending me an email and asking for permission for the drive, just check out our website, our Facebook, our Twitter to access that new link because I just cannot keep up with all the requests. I appreciate that so many people are interested in it though. It's, it's so awesome to have all those emails, but I'm the type of person that um, can't stay organized on a regular basis. And so to be flooded with all these emails right now, I'm looking at 25,000 unread emails just on a normal basis in my <laughs> in my box. So this is, um, I'm a little bit overwhelmed. So thank you though. I'm gonna pass it over now to Rebecca. Rebecca, tell us about how we can participate tonight, Rebecca. Hello, good evening, everybody. So if you are listening, watching us live, just sign into your YouTube account and you can chat right alongside your video. Um, ask questions, make comments, tell us how you're doing, tell us what you're doing for National School Psychology Week and how you are getting into gear. I'm excited for the NASP scavenger hunt, which starts tomorrow. Look on social media for your task for the day and winners get some kind of a prize. So I'm excited. I think I may be a little bit competitive about that also. Um, and so if you're listening, which many of our followers listen on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts, if you're listening later or watching the YouTube video recorded, please still free, feel free to comment because we really do enjoy the ongoing um, communication and connection and conversation. So Please comment on any of the Facebook pages. There are two, School Psych, Your School Psychologist, or the School Psych Podcast page, and on Twitter, at Podcast Psyched, using the hashtag Psyched Podcast. And now, before we begin, I'd like to take a quick break to talk about our sponsor, Med Travelers. As a school psychologist, having a strong support system in your career is instrumental in finding the placements and opportunities that fit your goals. That is why we are proud to partner with Med Travelers, the industry leader for staffing school psychologists in districts nationwide, offering the advantage of W-2 employment status, along with full health insurance coverage and a 401k retirement options, Med Travelers is a true advocate for your career success. To learn more about Med Travelers and to discover the ways they can help you succeed in your school psychology career, visit medtravelers.com forward slash school site. Thank you so much. And now I'm going to pass it off to Eric, who is going to introduce our wonderful returning guest.
Thank you, Rebecca and Rachel. Um, we are excited to have Dr. Evelyn Bilius Lawless here with us this evening. Um, and as uh, both Rachel and Rebecca mentioned, we are kicking off National School Psychology Week. And uh, so our theme this year is Get in Gear, Let's Get in Gear. And GEAR stands for Grow, Engage, Advocate, and Rise. And so I, I'm sure that there will be some connectedness with what Dr. Lawless, Billius Lawless, speaks to us about um, this evening, deconstructing anonymity, the power of connectedness in school and life. And so I'm sure we're going to uh, be able to apply some of that just to our career as school psychologists and ourselves as people. Uh, but quickly, uh, We'll remind you, Dr. Billy Slowless is a returning guest, and we're excited that uh, Rebecca and I both uh, work in the state with her. So we're, we're neighbors, so to speak, in Connecticut. And uh, she works at the Graduate School of Education and Allied Professions at Fairfield University. Uh, her research interests are in the area of positive psychology in the school, school climate reform, evidence-based interventions, and school-based mental health. Her most recent publication is on promoting understanding and equity through compassionate educational practice toward a new inclusion. So we're excited to have you with us, Evelyn. Um, welcome again. And uh, talk to us about um, connectedness and, and uh, where you want to go this evening with our conversation. Thank you, Eric, Rachel, and Rebecca. It's, it's, a one, it's a pleasure and an honor to be back. I always say you are the premier podcast for psychology in the schools, and I mean that. I appreciate all the work that you do, um, and you cover all aspects of the role, uh, mental health and assessment consultation. There isn't anything on, on your podcast that hasn't been broached upon, and so I'm truly honored to continue to contribute to it and to have you as colleagues and friends, so thank you. Um, you know, when we first met, I think we deepened our relationship over the shutdown. Um, and the first time we had our conversation, and it was a little bit preliminary about how to maintain connectedness in a pandemic that was unfolding, and we were literally locked down. Um, and, and we were flying the plane, right, while we're constructing it, the new plan of education, and, and trying to reach so many students and parents and, and, and juggle our roles, multiple roles in our home, all from our home front. And I think all of these things, I mean, it's amazing that we are where we are today. It's amazing that we're here and that there's there's tremendous good, I think, that has happened. There's tremendous introspection. Uh, talk about a spotlight on mental health and the importance of child mental health in the school setting. I think we've never had this kind of publicity, even though we've advocated for it, you know, forever. But what I think, you know, the pandemic did and, and with it distance learning is that it pulled the curtain on all the work that goes on in the classroom, that goes on with us, whether it's in the first tier going into classrooms or promoting wellness or the interventions that occur. I mean, I think parents in the background could hear their their children with their teachers. They they were in that classroom. Um, and so it's 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 actually been a blessing in the sense that it's op in the small capsule of time, it offered this glimpse into what is my child's school day and what is the content and the feel of that school day look like? 
Um, so now we're back, right? We're back. We're in recovery mode, hopefully. I mean, we're gearing towards recovery for sure. And so we're trying to reclaim our normalcy as a society. You know, we're trying to reclaim our social lives. We're trying to make up for milestones that were lost. You know, we're being creative as parents, as educators. All of this is going on currently in our schools. We're in November, right? November 7th. That is the day today, right? Eighth, something like that. Okay. Uh, and, you know, the honeymoon has worn off to some degree. And, you know, the transition into schools, which I think for the most part, if you think about students, some students not having stepped foot in a school or having very limited access to their education for 18 months, I mean, that this was a big transition. September was a big deal, right? And so we're at the point now, though, that the schools are operating at their rhythm and what we're seeing at least from what I you know from what I'm gathering and from what is being told to me and I, I'm going to turn it over to you in a miss in a minute you know um, we are really starting to see like no other year the impact and the debris that the pandemic the isolation the chronic stress the fatigue of everybody right uh, adults and children alike is having now on, on children and whether these were children that needed services before and we're getting them whether these were your preclinical you know subclinical um children now bumped up to clinical i mean um the chronic level of stress that we've been uh under i think has significantly changed the landscape of of what our schools are trying to simultaneously do today um, and I know that um, Rachel and Eric, I know you're in the elementary, you're servicing elementary school and, and Rebecca, you're going up to, I think, eight, is it eighth grade middle school? Um, what are you seeing? What are you seeing in terms of mental health in the school, this is the current landscape? Um, what are you seeing in students? What are you seeing in teachers, in the faculty? Yeah. I guess I'll start since I unmuted first. <laughs> I, um, we are seeing, and I also work in uh, in a private practice in a pediatric therapy group where we see children from uh, many local schools. Uh, so I, I would sort of look across the landscape of my actual school and also Lower Fairfield County and say, we are seeing a rise in, um, in anxiety, you know, and as you said, um, and difficulties with regulation of all kind. I, th I don't know if everyone out there is getting kind of more referrals for these uh, self-regulation processes, whether it be, you know, can't sit still and focus and pay attention or is impulsive, emotionally impulsive or having a hard time connecting with peers. It's, it's those kinds of um, challenging behaviors that I, I'm having referred to me. And then when I drill down a little and get to know uh, a student I discover there's just a, a, a lot that they've been kind of muscling through with very well, uh, I'd say, but it's now been a lot, you know, and so some of our, the fatigue, you know, some of the, that, that grit that we first employed to kind of get through the shelter in place days and even the, like the fear of coming back to school. Mm -hmm. um, in Connecticut, we were in per we've been in person, but um, you know, to go through a full school day with masks on. The other thing that I'm noticing a lot is various profiles of 
maybe delays or difficulties in social emotional functioning. Mm -hmm. You know, kids telling me they're having a harder time at recess or they're, they feel like they have no friends and, or they can't connect, especially kids that are new to school. Mm -hmm. so I'm seeing a, a lot of that. And, and the adults, like you mentioned, it's been a lot as, as all school psychologists know, we work very hard and we put, you know, our 110% in every day. Um, and it's been, a long two years and for teachers, certainly the same. So worrying for me, I, I also worry about, you know, how are the grownups doing? Parents, Absolutely. teachers, the community. Um, and there's variation in how we're all doing there too. Absolutely. Do you, uh, Rachel or Eric, do you have anything to add or does it sound familiar? <laughs> very, uh, very familiar. <laughs> I know that a lot, so Maryland was mostly virtual throughout last year. I want to say in March, late March, we kind of went back a hybrid for some students, um, you know, so like two days a week type of thing. And so we had a lot of kids that haven't set foot really in a classroom in a long time and kids that have been kind of missing too, that we haven't been able to track down and never got connected and so I'm seeing a lot of yeah kids that aren't used to being in a school setting, kids that uh, yeah don't really I think have to be taught how especially our younger ones um, how to how to do Social that. Life. Yes, yes, and then a lot of kids too that I think that would have been caught in a normal school year would have been seen and evaluated for you know autism or, or developmental delays and would have been kind of. Um, or emotional disability um, through the special education process, but because we were virtual, they kind of were under the radar and maybe um, weren't as, you know, the needs weren't as apparent. And so now all of a sudden they're back in the building and we're saying, oh my goodness, this one and this one and this one, and that so many students need help. So I've been writing a lot of behavior plans, right. um, having a lot of meetings, a lot of parents are very concerned with the learning loss. So it's, it's so far been probably my busiest year um, as a school psychologist. There's a lot of moving pieces. And, you know, from what I've gathered from my close friends, who I have a very, I'm fortunate to have best friends who are administrators and, you know, in, in all different types of districts and obviously my peers and my colleagues in, in, in mental health. But from what I'm gathering is at the lower levels in the elementary schools, you're seeing a lot of this more behavioral socialization kind of issues that are coming up because of the, you know, the gap that has occurred or, 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 or the stop. And then at the secondary level, is where you're really seeing these mental health crises manifest, right? I, you know, I had to, I have some quotes from um, a, a couple of my friends who are in the field who are administrators. You know, one of them said this past last week we had four calls to two one one. I mean, sorry, four days for four days in a row we called the crisis services, and on one of those days we called them twice. And so I think that, and, and that's so indicative, I think, of what we're seeing, these wait lists for th private therapists, um, hospital beds that are not available. Of course, these are more extreme cases, but nonetheless, I think it's speaking to the level of, you know, um, the level of stress that is on our kids. Now, as parents, I can't tell you how many of my friends that are parents have reached out to me asking for referrals, um, but, uh, you know, and and then they're them feeling like their hands are tied because there there weren't people or they'd have to their kid their child is suffering and they have to wait over the summer six weeks or four weeks to get that appointment that they needed and so it's a really fragile like a, it's a very vulnerable let me use that word um, a very vulnerable 
place. And so the point of this conversation and this discussion, I mean, the, the reason I start with this, and I think that is number one, to validate everybody, that it's hard, right? That, that you know, I think our schools are doing a phenomenal job. And I think that our teachers are really heroes. I, you know, I think that that what they've had to do and, and how they've had to reinvent themselves, you know, some easier than others. But I think what we're seeing in the mental health providers, I mean, I think we're seeing this pool of, of internal resources that are just bubbling up in, you know, resilience even from, from the, 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 the ground level at the schools. But, but there's only so much, right? There's only so much that, you know, direct service and direct support can do. And I think that that's what I heard from my colleagues. Like, I, I don't remember a year that it's been this, you know, that it's been this consuming, or I don't remember any other year that has been so intensive. And so, you know, my sense is, and it's always been this, like I was into the school connectedness research before the pandemic. I mean, I went and presented on it. I worked in schools. We've done projects. And, and the science of connectedness tells us that if a child, right, if a child feels themselves connected, right, to their school, that they are more likely to have a host of mental health and physical health benefits to the degree that it impacts their physical health, like they're less likely to use recreational drugs, they're less likely to smoke, they're less likely, they're more likely to sleep better and have a better mood, they have less, less likely to have anxiety, um, they have better heart health, and that's for adults too, immunity, all this stuff, and, and they're, um, one of the big findings too was that with our teenagers that they're less likely to start sexual relationships early. I mean, so all these findings from the research on if a child feels connected to their school, there are so many physical health benefits and also mental health benefits, right? Um, that the CDC, well before we were talking about them every single day <laughs> for the last two years, invested a lot of money in school connectedness, in creating materials for administrators. You can Google this, CDC, school connectedness, you will see it. For administrators, for schools, for professionals, and so forth, just saying, hey, this is a natural process that we have that is therapeutic physically and psychologically, and yet we're not pushing for it, or we feel that it's soft. And I think we miss a boat, we miss the boat there if we don't. Um, we, we, I guess we were um, spotlighted with it when we were disconnected from school. So you cut us out of school and everyone's at home and all of a sudden we want those connections, right? But that's really not what school connectedness is about. School connectedness and for the adult, the adult version is called social connectedness, same concept, right? It's this notion that the child feels seen and validated and valued by at least one person, adult not just for their academic success, but also for their person, right? If a child has that, then all of those health benefits that I just talked about come into play, right? It seems almost too simple, but here's the thing. And that's why when I was trying to think about this talk and what to call it, so it's not just another school connectedness thought, talk, it's about deconstructing anonymity because it's when students are anonymous, or when they feel anonymous. Maybe they're not necessarily anonymous, but they feel that way. They feel that they're not seen in their school community. And I mean seen, I mean really seen. Yes, my teacher calls on me, I answer, I don't answer. Oh, she'll send me to the principal or so forth. But 
how are they seen as individuals, as persons? How are they validated for who they are and what they bring to the table? Not just academically, from their homes, from their cultures, you know, from their background, from their interests and hobbies. You know, how are we connecting with kids so that they know that they're not going unnoticed, that th so they feel that I see you, you know? That is one of the most therapeutic things that we can provide for a child. Whether or not they're behaving appropriately or they're being challenging or they're testing anybody's nerves, they wanna be seen. And I think that in, in, in that connection, in that real fundamental humanistic basic need that we have as human beings, there is a pool of um, benefit of resilience, it buffers all these these other things out, and it's something that has to be mindfully cultivated. It's not something that we say, "Oh, yeah, that's a great idea." I've never tried to sell school connectedness to schools, and someone said, "That's a terrible idea. I don't want to invest in that." Right? It's no one's gonna no one's gonna talk this one down. They're gonna say yes, yes, yes. They're gonna yes you on this one. But when you make it a point to say, "Hey, we need to do this systematically," like we need to up the ante here because there aren't another, enough psychologists, social workers, school counselors, if you have a clinic in your school, clinicians, to help and to heal all of these kids all at the same time. That's just, that's just common sense, right? And so that's why I, I think it's, it's really easy for kids to be anonymous today or to feel that way. Adolescent make you feel that way. You spend your whole adolescence trying to prove your worth, right? Or, or explore. Eric's laughing. You might know a thing or two about teenagers, Eric. I have a feeling you do, <laughs> right? And then if you think about it, and my best friend who's a principal, um, she's a principal at a magnet high school, she was telling me, she said, Evelyn, my freshman, she's like, they've been out 18 months, some of them. And when they started, you know, when they were making the transition during those transitional middle school years, you know, biology was going on. They had all these, you know, the normal things. And then you just cut them off socially from where, you know, what, what is the highlight and, the, and the, uh, the, the, broad, the broadcast of the period. And now they're really struggling you know, at this point to enter high school when all, and all they want to do is prove themselves and all they want to do is draw attention to themselves and so forth. So I think that um, when we think about what we can do as a community, whether, and, and it doesn't have to come from one person, you know, it's like, well, this is what we can do as a community. The PTA can be a part of this, you know, every teacher, the paras, the cafeteria folks, it really, the bus drivers, we're at a shortage, but the ones that we have, you know, like, um, you know, it doesn't matter who it is for the child to experience that value of that connection, but it's work. You know, it's not, kids can, can um, I don't know, they can sense that, it, it, you know, in, um, in authenticity, you know, like a, it's like they, they have a, a sixth sense about it. They know who is just giving them the lip service and they know who's genuinely trying to connect with them. And I think that, you know, in order for us to really help our educational system, in order for us to help our um, mental health system for kids, we need to take, you know, take ownership of the fact that we can be therapeutic, the collective we. And we don't, we don't, we don't knock on that door enough. And I think we need to.
Um, so that's why there's my interest and continues to be in this area. Um, and, and why I think that it, as I was reprocessing this, especially for now, and what does it mean for now? And what can parents and teachers and school psychologists, what can we do now for these kids? I did come up with, uh, I don't have many slides, but I came up with as a, a list of just misconceptions. And thank you for sharing that. So in, in terms of de deconstructing the anonymity and breaking down these walls um, and blind spots that we might have, you know, what are common mis misconceptions about connectedness? And these are just from my head, they're not from anywhere else. But misconception number one is that children wanna be left alone, especially teens. That's not true. They might want their boundary, they might want their space, but there is, there's, a child does not want to be isolative. A child does not want to be disconnected from everyone in their school, sports, or any other community. Um, children want to be seen, and they want to be validated, and they want to be understood at any age. And I think teenagers even more so. And, and here's the one where I think as parents and as school professionals, you know, in our consultations and, and, and in working with educators, you know, of course, part of adolescence is that independence. And you don't want to, you don't want to, you know, be on top of them. You want to let them be able to explore their identities, to, to find their own and so forth. But that doesn't mean that they don't want us to, um, to, to be present or they don't want us or want someone, to, an adult, to notice them. You know, and, and, and this always brings up one little anecdote that I had. Forgive me if I've shared it before, but, you know, I was 20 something <laughs> when September 11th happened and I was a clinician in an outpatient mental health and substance abuse facility. And all my student, all my clients that were there, they were there by court order. So this was an alternative to jail. So these are these were adjudicated or soon to be adjudicated youth. And, you know, they, their probation officers would contact us, make sure every week that their attendance was in. We'd have to give reports. I mean, their attendance and them coming to the program every single day was an intensive outpatient was priority. I can't tell you how many times I would get phone calls saying, it's raining outside, miss. Do I have to come today? I've got new sneakers, miss. I really don't want to get them dirty. And the rain. You know, they would try to come up with anything you can think of to try to meet for me to give them the pass, right? From from coming to therapy that day. And I remember the day of September 11th. I must I was sitting in my office and I talked to my supervisor and I said, "You know, I don't know if anyone's even going to come in today." And she said, "Everyone, I don't I'm not sure anyone will come in, but just hang out there, you know, pick up the phone, just see what what happens." And this and after school, 2 o'clock, I started getting phone calls, 2:10. Um Miss, is there a program today? Miss, is there a program today? And they all came. I mean, when you think about these kids wanted an out and they would try to finagle that out any, any way they could. On one of the scariest days of their childhood and of my life, you know, they, they wanted to come. But when they're there, you know, maybe they're being defiant or maybe they're moaning and groaning or they want to be left alone. But that certainly wasn't the message when they needed to feel safety. And I think that's what we have to remember because in connection, there's safety. And if you have someone that, and think of your own life, right? Who are the people that you feel really see you, right? It's not gonna be everybody. You might be social, you might have fun, you might have a big presence, you know, but the people who can really see you, you know, they're your safety, right? And I think that that's what we have to try to, you know, to, to, to see in our children. 
does my child have someone like this? You know, in the school, do, does every kid have at least one person? And how do we figure it out so that at least every kid has at least one adult? So that's misconception number one. They don't want to be left alone. Okay. Misconception number two is that school connectedness is measured by whether the teacher or the adult feels connected to the child. That's not true. Because if you think of someone that tries very hard to be your friend, but it's a hard relationship because you're not feeling it that much. You're cordial, you're, you're respectful. I mean, this happens to all of us folks, right? They might feel that they're trying to connect with you, but I'm not feeling that connection, right? So it's not about the person trying to connect. It's about the person feeling the connection. So if a child does not feel connected to Mrs. Smith, even though Mrs. Smith thinks that that's her, that's her student right there, she's done everything for, for this kid. It, do, it, it matters in that, yes, we want teachers making efforts. We want adults making conscientious efforts to connect with the kids. But the bottom line is, the reality is, it's the child's perception of whether or not they have that person in the building or in their life. Does that make sense? Right. So if we were to measure connectedness and, and we did this, I did this in a, in a middle school that I consulted with. We measured connectedness in all the kids and then we measured connectedness in the teachers. And there was a disparity in percentages between teachers who said, oh, yes, you know, feeling connected and the, the number of kids that said they actually did before we started an intervention. So we have to respect what the, the children and, and what our students are saying. Right. Um, they're not just necessarily saying it to make it difficult. And, and then we have to be able to be even more open and more pliable and more flexible to reach them. So that's number two. Evelyn, can I uh, just Please. jump in? I, I think that's such a good point. Um, you know, often we have solutions for kids, right, that don't involve the kids. And, <laughs> you know, and, and so our perception is sometimes right that, oh, I'm connected with that kid or. I've got the solutions to, to solve these problems. And sometimes we haven't really taken the time to ask the kids uh, what they need or whether or not they feel connected. So I, I think that's so important, um, engaging them at this level. Absolutely. Absolutely. And getting that information from an assessment standpoint can be tricky because the only way to get that information is to ask them. And so whether you're asking them directly in a counseling session and saying, you know, who, who in this building, who's your person? You know, or whether we're doing a, a school-wide survey or it's part of the school-wide survey that annually we send to kids and you throw in a question on that. But that's the only way. We're not going to get that data from the teachers. We'll get their perceptions. The only way to get that data is from the students. You know, and what we can do for the teachers is to say, you know, and I've done this exercise where we've we've I've made them all take out their rosters in their in their grade levels and said, okay, these are the students you share. Tell me, who, check next to every name you feel connected, you feel the teacher connected to. And they would check it out. Now compare your rosters. Is there any kid that is not on anyone's list? That's our at-risk kid. The kid might feel connected to somebody, but there's a chance that we might have missed somebody there. And so that's a way to intervene that way. But ultimately, the only way to know is it to ask our children, parents, the same thing. You know, it, they need to have these conversations with their kids to know that because that relationship is can be the buffer you know can be the buffer and, and the reason a kid gets up out of bed every day you know or goes to school every day despite feeling anxiety or despite feeling x y or z 
So yes, absolutely, Eric, thank you for that. Um, the third misconception is that the popular gifted or star athlete student feels connected to the school. That's not necessarily true. It's more likely, yes, if the, if the child has, if they feel in their different roles, whatever these roles that I've just outlined are, that they feel valued for them and that they have someone who's necessarily seeing them not just as the athlete, but as the person and as the student or not just as the popular kid or not just as the smart kid, then sure. But there are plenty of high functioning, plenty of very gifted students plenty of very popular students who feel alone and they can be surrounded by people every day and be extroverts and be in social circles all the time and feel alone so that's again we can't we can't know unless we ask them right we can't know unless we ask them because i don't know about you but in my adult life there have been plenty of times where i felt surrounded by a lot of people who loved me and still felt alone Right. So if I can feel it, then a, ch a child can definitely feel it. Right. Good. OK, so a few more. And number four, it has to be you. This is my favorite. We feel that as the caregivers, as the mental health providers, as a parent, that it has to be us. We have to be that one person for the child. But it doesn't. Science doesn't say it has to be you, Rebecca. It just says it has to be somebody in the school. So if for whatever reason, I'm not the one the child's identifying with. I'm not the one. I mean, they're giving me what I need, but, but I'm not their person. My responsibility ethically, if you ask me and professionally, is to find that person, to help this kid find that person in the building. And maybe it's somebody of a similar culture or speaks a, a similar language, or maybe it's somebody with a similar hobby or somebody that reminds them of someone in their family. Who knows? It doesn't matter. It doesn't have to be me. I say, I, I give, when I give this professional development all the time, I say that, you know, it's not about my ego. It's not about my ego. I just need this child to feel connected with whomever and not to take it personally if, if the chemistry is better <laughs> somewhere else. It doesn't mean that you can't have good chemistry with a student and do what you need to do as a school psychologist. But I do think what's super important for us is to notice though that, hey, I think this can go a little bit further. And I'm not that person, but I know my friend in history or I know the art teacher who's gifted and creative and a little zany, you're going to love her, <laughs> you know, and, and try to help negotiate those relationships. Right. So it doesn't have to be. And that, that it also helps with burnout. I think like we're always thinking about, all right, put the cape on folks, put the cape on and just dart on in there, you know, or, or, or the, the fire hose or whatever else that is that we're, we're showing up with. Right. Administrators probably feel the same way, too. It's not that because when we shift it, if we shift the level of responsibility, if we shift the level of care and compassion to the community, then we're all we're all carrying it. We're all carrying it because in the in the realm of connectedness, we can. Which goes to the next one, <laughs> I think. Um, it needs to be specialized. It needs to come from a specialist. Malarkey. Absolutely not. In fact, I remember being a grad student and being told um, at that time, there was this big meta-analytic statistical study that they made us read. Um, and basically it compared all the effect sizes. So all the efficacy of all the different counseling 
orientation, CBT, DBT, psychoanalytics, solution focus, like every study that you can find that was published was put into this article and it was statistically reduced to say, which one is the best? And they're all evidence-based, right? Most of them were evidence-based. Do you know the result of that study? I never forgot it. I don't remember the name, I'd have to look it up, but I never forgot the results, is that it didn't matter. The person mattered. The person mattered over the orientation. That yes, all these different things are effective, but what's more effective is that that client or that student or that person has someone who they connect with who sees them. It could be a mental health provider. It could be a spiritual leader. It could be, it, it, you know, it could be pastoral. It doesn't even need to be in, in the mental health, right? It just, it, it needs a person that has that unconditional regard for this kid, that has that investment, and that has that, that the, the, um, the ability to really see a child. So it doesn't have to be a specialist. Again, if we change our framework, if we change our mindset, that it doesn't always have to be the specialist, now we're empowering again an entire community to rise together. Okay, I think there's only one more. The last one is, you know, that this is limited to children. And so if you Google uh, social connectedness in adults, you will see that all the same benefits Better heart health, more uh, better immunity, um, less depression, less anxiety. Uh, there's there's a host of. I think the one of the, the the deadliest killers that we have out there, and I know that there is research to support to support this. Right, is isolation. Isolation is worse for your heart than smoking cigarettes, a pack a day or two. Literally, there's science out there that says feeling alone is worse for your heart and your lifespan than smoking cigarettes. So, and there's plenty of very cool infographics that will tell you the same thing. Positive psychology pours all of this out. So let's not just think about the kids. School connectedness is about the kids, but what about the adults? Who's seeing and feeling and validating them in the building, right? And, and do we feel that way? Because if we don't feel that way, then we're in a short, you know, short road to, to a burnout as well, or to being depressed or anything else that we're set, you know, we're vulnerable to in, in the work that we do, right? So we need to understand that. And it's not a matter of having the connections, right? Like I think of myself, I, I, I you know, I, I take pride in generations of friends that I've had my across decades of my life and new friends that I've made that I absolutely adore. But I remember when, you know, I remember when I was postpartum. And it was a brutal winter and I had anxiety because <laughs> I had babies and I felt alone. Like everybody else, I was on maternity leave. Everybody else was living their life, <laughs> right? I had, you know, I have, I knew what I needed, but I couldn't access any of it. Really. I couldn't access it. So it's not just about having it, but it's about being able to access what those connections can bring you, you know? And, and that's a very, very, um, you know, it's, it's a very brutal truth, but it's the truth. You know, you can know what you need. Like a school psychs, we know what we need. I need retail therapy. I need my mindfulness or my yoga. I need X, Y, or Z, you know, and I'll be, and I'm good. But what happens when that's not as readily available, right? And so I think that that's what the pandemic has showed us too. Some of that wasn't as readily available. So it's just as important for us to make sure that we feel that we have at least one person or more than one person that really sees all of us. 
and that, you know, and that is able to express that and that we're able to express that to them. For me, the, the best therapists are your best friends, <laughs> right? If they're true friends. I mean, they don't even need to have a background, but that the therapeutic nature of that relationship is the driver. You know, it's the driver to get you what you need. Okay. And I think that might be, that might be the last one. What do I have next? Or is it just, let's talk about how do we do this? Yes. So let's talk about how do we do this in the you know, remaining 10 or so minutes that we have. And I'll open the floor. You can, um, if you want to, you can close this out if you wanted to. Um, how do we, how do we do it? Any thoughts? I had a couple of thoughts. As you were talking, I feel like I hear myself. <laughs> there might be, is there a reverberation? Okay. A little bit, maybe I'll mute. Thank you. Um, I, I was thinking about a couple of things when you were talking about the adult sense of connection. One of the most striking things about last year for us, we were in person, but in small cohorts and not intermingling throughout the building and meetings were on Zoom. One of the things I missed the most were the small moments of like getting my coffee in the dining hall in the morning and chit-chatting with teachers that I don't see, you know, every day or, you know, the water cooler in the in the faculty kitchen and things like that, those moments of connection. So um, one thing I think we can do that's really important is because as the demand on our time grew because we were all doing totally brand new things and having to learn on the fly, as you said, um, even when we were able to have those small moments of connection that were sort of maybe not work related, but just connective, um, we didn't always take them, right? Because just the time, you know? So I, I feel as though we really have to intentionally manage our time in a way that fuels us rather than, you know, just burns fuel all day because, and I, I, I'm very guilty of this. I run on fumes sometimes because I feel like it, because of my own anxiety, I need to get it done. I need to get it done. So I'll just eat here while I'm catching up on my email or, you know, at my desk. And it's just, it's not, it, it makes for a very stressful week. And, um, when typically our jobs can be so fulfilling, it's a shame that I allow, allow myself to do that. So I'm trying to be more conscious of that myself. I think you nailed it. I mean, intentional, there's no way you can't do, and anytime you do anything intentional, right? Whether it's, oh, I wanna do a, gra a gratitude regimen where everybody gets a kick now at this time of the year. Once you, once you commit yourself to it, you realize how hard it is to do it. It sounds so good. But the minute you say, I'm going to do this intentionally, you know what? We're going to focus on connectedness and we're going to make sure that every kid in our school, as best as we can as a school, feels that they have somebody. Well, now you've got a year long project that's going to involve a lot more than just talking about it and feeling good. Right now you've got to set a plan and then also create opportunities. You need to create opportunities for this to happen. You know, it may happen organically in any period, maybe, 
But if you're not thinking about how, what are we doing to create intentional opportunities, and here's where our PTAs can get involved, you know, and, and other, other uh, like auxiliary, you know, like appendages of the school that are so important to the school to help forge that, 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 um, that bridge, right? And, and to say, okay, how can we as parents or how can we as a parent organization work with the school, partner with the school that would help the kid feel more connected to the school, but also that we're a part of it too. And don't get me wrong. I know that, that you know, we have to be careful in just isolating that parent body because it might be a certain type of parent that's able to commit to that. But really thinking about it, you know, very sensitively and saying, okay, like what can we do as a school that takes away the anonymity of a child. What can we do? How can we recognize them and see them? Not they're not all going to have like, you know, neon streaks in their hair. <laughs> right? Or a piercing that's going to catch your eye and you're going to be like, "Okay, you know, like this they're saying I want you to see me." You know, most of them are not. So what are what what opportunities because they have to be intentionally created? Spaces, conversations, activities intentionally created to allow for them, the person, to come into the classroom, into the project, into the activity, so that the teacher can then recognize that and say, wow, that's a really cool thing about Johnny, right? And now I'm going to bank that because this is what Real Connection does. I'm going to bank that about Johnny. And then when I see him in the hallway three weeks from now or if I see him somewhere, I'm going to bring him up and ask him how that's going for him. That's how they know. People will say to me, because I try to be very conscientious about like really, really listening to people. Sometimes I'm great. Sometimes I'm terrible at it, you know, um, but I, I think um, I think that, you know, when I, I really try to remember things that are personal to them so that the next time I see them, I can follow up on it because then and they and they're legitimately surprised when I do. Like I get more surprised and ah than actual, you know, than than oh, that's just normal. No, <laughs> right. So I think that that's something. Rachel, did you have something you wanted to share? I had. I mean, I was thinking. My my husband is a teacher, and he said a couple times this year something that that's made me think. So he taught sixth grade, sixth grade math um, for for many years, and then right around pandemic time, he made the jump to eighth grade math. And so one of the things that he said is, you know, you know, as we're doing virtual learning and as we're now finally back in the classroom is like, thank God that I knew these students before. So he already had relationships with these students. So when he's, you know, teaching virtually, it wasn't all kids that were new to him. He already knew their names. He had relationships with them. And he said that really that kind of saved it and saved and made it just so much um easier to, to know the kids. And, and, you know, now that he's back in the classroom, he, you know, again, these are kids that he's taught in sixth grade that now they're, 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 you know, reached up to eighth grade. And it's just been a huge um, help with, with, with managing things um, across the board. So I was just thinking about something like um, looping with children or, you know, you know, letting them, you know, have a teacher kind of teach two years in a row or things like that, if that would be something Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that that I know that, you know, I think I think logistically it can create sometimes nightmares for administrators. But I think especially in the lower grades or when you think of interruptions that have happened like that, that just makes sense. Or or that they're part of a cognate where, you know, that that, the, you know, that you're splitting a class in a way that those teachers 
the new and the old are really talking to one another, right? And having the time to do that. Um, the high school is so much different, you know, that, that gets it to an entirely different animal. But, you know, and, and as you're talking, it made me think about, you know, when I was, I worked at the high school for a couple of years in a large urban high school. And I remember that sometimes we were told for school climate, which was the right thing to do. Like when, when the bell rings, step out, step out of your office, step out of the hallway. Everybody, all the adults in the building were told, step out into the hallways because it makes a difference in terms of seeing the kids, greeting the kids, and also management of kids, right? And so uh, I remember one of my, one of my, uh, the, my favorite colleagues, who was a social worker, um, him and I were like a dynamic duo, right? He was my wingman, he'd say I'm his wingwoman, but he was really the wingman. Um, we were walking out around one day in the ninth grade building. Remember, we come across this, this couple of kids that were skipping. They were just right blatantly in the hallway. And I remember him going up to, I'll never forget this, him going up to them very, very nicely and saying, young man, you need to get to class. And, and, and the young man turned around to him and said, I don't know you. He's like, why do you need to, you know, why do I need to do what you tell me? I don't know you. And my, and my friend stopped right there, humbled himself, like it was a beautiful moment, and said, hi, I'm Mr. So-and-so, shook his hand, what's your name? You know, like, and it, but, but the, the, the child was right. Like, you know, you're more likely to get what you need, or you're more likely to, you know, it's, it's, it's that much easier when you have a relationship and you're not anonymous to someone and that someone's not, you know, and you're not anonymous, you know, as the adult. So that's what it triggered in me, which is, which is a great, I didn't think I'd share that story, but, but it was powerful to see, you know, when, when the child pushes back on the adult and says, who are you? You know, you're not even, I know you're not a teacher. I've never seen you in my life. Right. Um, so I, I agreed that I think that, you know, it's creating those opportunities. Um, and I think another thing as we wrap up, um, you know, two things, I think. One is a mindset. Both are mindsets, actually. One is we need as adults to put our egos aside, humble ourselves and see past the behavior, you know, this is the adult parent. This is the adult teacher. This is the adult mental health worker. We need to humble ourselves enough to see past the behavior and view it like an observer, like, this is curious. Hmm. Instead of just responding and flinching or being offended or being frustrated, we need to be able to view it as an observer and just say, that's curious. And then see past that behavior and try to understand what that behavior is trying to tell us or where the child is coming from. That's how you connect with a child. You know, that's how you connect, not by reacting or responding or, you know, like not by just um, a knee jerk reaction. So I think that, the you know, I always tell myself, like, is this about me? Is this about my ego? Like, what's going on with me right now? Is this because if it's about my ego, I'm probably like not re responding from the place that I need to be responding from. You know, and and you know what? We all have tendencies. Children have more right to them because <laughs> it's part of their developmental process. The world revolves around them, you know, but but as an adult, I can check myself. Right. I can check myself. And then the last tidbit that I have is that, you know, walking around with the mindset of everyone's just doing the best they can to cope. And that goes from the teachers to the administrators to the students, you know, to us, our colleagues. You know, we're just all doing our best to cope with a very difficult, 
ongoing situation. And if we view the behavior, everyone's, our colleagues, our bosses, you know, in the hallway, at the meetings, anywhere else as this is just everybody trying to cope, maybe we can approach things from a different angle in a more powerful angle, in a, an angle that is more binding and connecting than it is kind of, you know, eroding or, or alienating. So. That's beautiful. I love it. I, I was just asking in the chat if anyone out there is using any good universal screeners for either positive school culture and climate screeners or even universal well-being mental health screeners, because I do think we miss the kids who are either internalizing, you know, with their with their behavior or um, just, you know, on paper doing really well, the high the high performing, like you said, the athletes, mm -hmm. the popular kids. Um, we may not know if they're struggling unless we ask. So I'm wondering about screeners if if anyone listening over time uh, has some good ones that they've used, please share in the chat or um, on our social media because I'd love to explore that myself. And there is a school connectedness scale. It's a very short instrument. It's free, oh, you know? Okay. Yeah, very brief, which is, you know, it's student-based. Uh, um, I've used it in research studies too, but again, it's, you know, by itself, it, it could be limiting, but it definitely gives you that kind of the, the set, you know, a, a general sense of, of what, where the child feels. And it's great to use if you're using it in a classroom or with a grade level, it's great to use before you do something right as your baseline and then implement whatever connectedness kind of interventions you want to, and then, and then use it again and see if you've actually seen an increase in what their perceptions are. Um, and I'm assuming that that's kind of your your first step when you're going into a, a new school or a new place is to kind of get that baseline data and figure out what's going on. Mm -hmm. Awesome. I'm looking for any uh, additional questions or comments from the audience, but this has been great. And I'm, I always, I, I love having our podcast on Sunday night because then it kind of, it, you know, rubs me up for, for going into the week. And this has certainly done that. And I think that, um, you know, it validates sometimes as school psychologists, I, I don't get to my to-do list. <laughs> I don't get to do all the things that all the reports that I needed to write and whatnot, because maybe I'm pulled into this or pulled into that, but it, it makes me, you know, it's, it's more worthwhile sometimes to get pulled into to problem solving the, the kid that's having a bad day or, you know, touch base with this kid or that kid or to just be in the hallway and um, connecting with students and connecting with staff members. So I think that that, you know, that feels good that, okay, even though I didn't get to my to-do list, um, that that's still very much a worthwhile thing. Absolutely. Okay. I don't see any last um, comments, but... Um, Eric, I think you were going to read our uh, sponsor clip, maybe? Sure, yeah. I really just want to thank Evelyn for being our guest this evening and having this wonderful conversation, sharing your thoughts and, and wisdom with us. And and really, it's, you know, so much that we needed to hear about this connectedness, right, and how to um, reconnect. And, uh, and I think, as you said in the beginning, Evelyn, the you know, the, the landscape has changed, right? It's never going to be the same. And so mm -hmm. we have to figure this out now from where we are here instead of going back to where we were and, and trying to settle in. Um, 
and, and just so many good things. So hopefully people will um, take things with them and, and go back and listen. We had a great conversation. Sometimes I have to go back and listen because mm -hmm. I want to uh, write down a couple of things that were really pertinent. Um, so thank you so much, Evelyn. And yeah, uh, reminder, um, in 1121, we're going to talk about um, how schools can help uh, work with an, there's an agency that will be talking with us about how they work with schools to um, address human trafficking and, and fight against human trafficking, which uh, I'm sure will be a tough subject, but, but really important. So that'll be in two weeks. And reminder that um, let's get in gear for National School Psychology Week and uh, and share ways on, on social media how we're going to grow, engage, advocate, and rise um, for our students, teachers, families, and the profession. So um, as we close, I'll just quickly read our sponsor, uh, thank our sponsor, and um, read our, our little statement for Med Travelers. So uh, again, we thank Med Travelers for their continued support of school psychologists nationwide. As the leader in school staffing, the genuine care, benefits, and guidance that Med Travelers demonstrates with school psychologists is the mark of a true partner for career success. To learn more about Med Travelers and discover the ways that they can help you succeed in your school psychology career, visit medtravelers.com slash school psyched. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, Dr. Lawless. Thank you so much. And happy November. Yes. Lots to be thankful for. <laughs> yes. Thank you.